This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a weekly curated podcast for physicians and healthcare professionals. Hi, I'm Dawn Davis, Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics. And I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, Professor of Orthopedic Surgery at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Today our podcast is examining the personal stories behind taking care of your well-being and learning from two very busy consultants at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. Joining us today are Dr. Sharon Hayes, Professor of Medicine, and Dr. Brian Carlson, Associate Professor of Orthopedic and Plastic Surgery. Welcome to the show, Sharon and Brian. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're very glad that you're here. So this is a very exciting and poignant topic given the daily pressures that we all feel as healthcare professionals. Today's podcast is a little bit different as we wanted to delve deeper into the personal aspects of well-being and how this applies to each of you. So let's jump in. As we start, we both would like to firstly thank you for sharing your personal stories and for being vulnerable with us and with the audience. It's not easy to do. It would be helpful for us to understand a little bit about your background and about your clinical practice and workloads. So, Sharon, would you like to start? So, um, I'm very busy clinically, um, but I guess going back and relevant to this topic, I married a cardiologist and we knew that we wanted to have children. And so, and I, decided that, well, I was pregnant at the end of my fellowship, that I really couldn't see both of us working 80 hours a week and have it, and doing that. And so I, unlike our other guest, I did decide, I came on staff at Mayo Clinic at 0.7 FTE. And um, that allowed me some flexibility, um, and there were downsides of that, and I'm happy to discuss that. It allowed flexibility and it really helped our family. Um, there were some downsides from a career standpoint. And I will say that during the time um, back then, when I was part-time, I was the first part-time cardiologist. Um, it was well accepted. In fact, when I told the chair that I wanted to come on part-time and I was pregnant when he offered me the job, he didn't miss a beat. He said, oh, how much, like 0.5, you can talk to HR. And that made a big difference. I think the, the other arc of my career is that I think many people assume that I would just go full-time as soon as the kids were in kindergarten. Um, and what I found was I found other things that were very meaningful to me, whether it was physical health, volunteering um, uh, um, on that day off to the point that um, I've never worked full-time. I've always had a day off a week that was mine or someone else's or my children's or a nonprofit in DC. Um, that has really enriched my career and my family life. Sharon, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned you and your husband are both cardiologists. So that initial discussion was, why are you going part-time as opposed to him? And does that pertain to 2023? Yeah, well, that was a long time ago, one. Two, um, he was already full-time. And, um, and so it was very pragmatic. I mean, I, I, I literally came to join the staff as I came back from a maternity leave. And so to me, going from fellowship to full-time, um, I do think we thought about it a little bit differently um, in terms of trade-offs and careers, but that is something that we did. So my husband wa had many leadership roles here at Mayo and external to Mayo. Um, and then we shifted gears. When he stepped down from one of those, that's when I ascended into being um, an enterprise leader for director of, uh, director of diversity and inclusion. 
And so it was, he didn't drop his FTE, but it was he who had the relationship getting our son off to school and things like that. And um, part of the reason I could do this and was pretty confident that I wasn't taking second, playing second fiddle in a marriage is he had always showed so much respect for me and what I could do. Um, and it kind of just traded off and we both were able to accomplish what we wanted to do. I think in 2023 lens, is it always the woman who's gonna work part-time? But in our situation, probably would be the same. He had been on, um, he had been a consultant for six years before I was. That makes sense. And then Brian, what's your story? Well, first of all, I'm a, uh, I, my specialty is hand surgery here at Mayo Clinic, but I do a lot of uh, limb reconstruction as a part of that and my plastic surgery background. Um, so my practice is a, is a busy, mostly hospital-based practice of upper and lower limb reconstruction. And so my story starts actually as a third year medical student. I grew up uh, as an athlete my whole life and as a third year medical student, I developed type one diabetes, classic, classic symptoms. I was actually on a military scholarship. It came on really quickly. And uh, so at that time I was already targeting a surgical career. I actually wanted to be a vascular surgeon and uh, so, it, you know, it was uh, difficult uh, at that time to accept that. Um, uh, but my goals were, I was very career uh, directed, you know, type A personality, and um, just said, what do I need to do to, you know, accomplish my goals and didn't want it to slow me down. So I went to, did my, I did general surgery residency. I saw the light and dis and, and discovered that plastic surgery was, you know, I was actually thinking about switching to orthopedics, but uh, I discovered hand surgery was an option from plastics and it, it allowed me to stay loyal to my program and my mentors. So I did general surgery and then research in plastic surgery and then came here for my hand fellowship we had two kids in training and two kids uh, shortly after or at my training that have seen you <laughs> and all you. And things were going okay until I was uh, around, probably like in retrospect, I can see things more clearly now, but probably late, late 30s, early 40s, which is I finished my training at 38. Um, so in my early career, I just probably wasn't feeling great, although I didn't really recognize it at the time, and a light got shined on that uh, at age 42. So at 42, I had I had, had some palpitations which were benign, but my son was having them too, and his weren't benign. And being at Mayo Clinic, you're always like, well, maybe maybe mine aren't benign either, and I should have them uh, re-looked at. So I went through that process, and they 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 are benign palpit, you know, a little uh, arrhythmias, which are benign. And then, um, but as a part of that, the cardiologist was like, you know, you've had diabetes now for 17 years, probably you should get a CT scan of your coronaries, which I did. And uh, at that time I was doing a lot of research. I was very career driven, you know, trying to do all of the things that you've done with your career. <laughs> you know, these are our role models. And I had a research day. So I had the CT scan at like 7 a.m. on the research day. And I looked at my own images and I saw something white and I was like, wow, is that a lymph node? I wasn't. So I Google imaged uh, CT 
you know, I don't know, I don't know how to read a CT uh, scan of your coronary, so I Google image it, and that Google image that popped up looked just like my CAT scan with calcium in my um, in my LAD, and you know, I was devastated. You know, I was young. I thought I was healthy. I was still exercising, but less so. Maybe going for a three-mile run once or twice a week, eating what I thought was a healthy diet, you know, raisin bran. I'd get the veggie burger in the surgeon's cafeteria instead of the meat, the meat burger. Gen generally what I thought was a healthy lifestyle, and I think a lot of us would probably think that was healthy. But I was like, what else can I do? I always had a normal uh, A1C and good glycemic control. So I, w I w consulted the internet and, <laughs> and I found a book called uh, How to Prevent and Reverse uh, Heart Disease by Caldwell Esselstyn, who was a general surgeon at uh, Cleveland Clinic. And it, it spoke to me because it just, it, he was a surgeon and it also just, I wanted it to go away. You know, I wanted a cure. And uh, so I bought that book that morning. I canceled my meetings for the rest of the day and read that book on Apple Books. And by lunchtime, I was a whole food plant-based diet guy. So I, I had given up all animal products in that moment. And so his recommendations and what, what he was able to do in the book was to uh, prescribe basically cardiac cripples who were no longer candidates for uh, coronary artery bypass or, st or stenting, and this was in the 80s, took them and put them on a, what, what we would know now as a whole food plant-based diet, but also eliminated nuts and avocados, so basically a very low-fat whole food vegan diet. And so I did that, and um, to make a long story short, uh, with my type 1 diabetes, I, I was getting low blood sugar all of the time. Like my blood sugar was just, I couldn't, I felt like, I, th I wondered if my diabetes was cured. I was starting to feel better also pretty quickly, but also, but you know, I was really bothered or um, unsure what was going on with my blood sugar. So at that time I was taking probably 50 or 60 units of insulin total per day. Um, and I understand that a lot of the audience are physicians, so I, ho I hope they will. Um, I, I won't explain what all of this means in <laughs> lay terms, but 50 or 60 units a day and eating in um, a low carbohydrate diet, you know, a fairly low carbohydrate diet. And I went from that to eating uh, double or triple the amount of carbohydrates, uh, sometimes n now even four times what I was eating back then. And I'm eating, or and, and then I'm using um, between a third and a half the amount of insulin per day. So, basically, my diabetes was not cured, but I became extremely insulin sensitive. And that wasn't in the book. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that was coming. And uh, and that's that's like the most objective thing that happened to me. But a lot of other things happened to me too, where I um, uh, had a lot of energy. I used to you know, drink caffeine all day, every day, you know. And I became very sensitive to the point that where I couldn't even uh, drink a cup of coffee anymore, I would get jittery. Just kind of a random thing, like just my body and my, everything was changing. I was also, at that time I said I wasn't feeling well. I had a lot of neck and back pain. I had had a radiculopathy that caused some weakness, which was concerning as a surgeon that had resolved. Um, but, um, 
that all went away. I just noticed, you know, I don't even know how long afterward it was. A few months later, I stopped, you know, reaching for the ibuprofen anymore. So, well, Brian, how did you how did you do all of this? I mean, you're a you know a, a super busy surgeon. You're the father of four beautiful children. Yeah. You're academically busy. Um, to make that change from just reading a book in one day to making that switch, there's a lot of lifestyle changes. There's a lot of changes that you have to make in terms of priorities. H how did you do all that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and um, you know, I think in that for me, it's easier when you're faced with something that's scary. So like there's a lot of people like me out there, a lot of people that, you know, whether it's a heart disease diagnosis or a cancer diagnosis, um, that can, it's easier in that moment because there's fear and, you know, my kids were young and I wanted to, I, you know, th that was, I think that's the, that's the short and honest answer. Mm -hmm. For me now, that's more like, how do I, because um, we know heart disease is, is in everyone, the beginnings of it by age 10. You know, we know this from traumatically killed ch uh, children and you know a lot a lot of studies and heart trans heart uh, donors that, that that the disease exists in young and so how do we how do we motivate people um that that don't aren't faced and this is my challenge and this is how i and part of it is you know me i like to go hard and you know type a surgeon personality i jump in with both feet but yeah so I don't really have a great answer other than like fear is a good motivator. And I think that fear shouldn't, you shouldn't wait until you're in that moment before you make a positive change. I would just say that I take care of many patients who have scary diagnoses who don't make that change, yeah. who continue to smoke. So I, you know, or, or do other self-harm behaviors. So I think, yes, having that crisis is a motivator. But there must have been something inside you that um, it, part of your personality or your grit or something, because I would say that kind of change in my experience of people who have a similar diagnosis, it doesn't. So I, I think there was there's something other than it was life threatening. Yeah, I get that. And I and I have these patients, too. I, I don't like I love to talk about this with my colleagues and my patients um, because it's to me, it's so powerful. Um, but I have realized like not everyone will do this. And I, a lot of times it's just a matter of getting them to um, just to stop smoking or smoke less or, you know, or yeah, sometimes it's, it is, it is uh, baby steps. It is baby steps, but um, I, I do think you talking about your experience and that it can be done. And it's not just, you know, driven surgeons can do it. And I think that that's, I, I assume that's a little bit what you're trying to get at is we can all make, whether it's dramatic changes or incremental changes that make a difference. Yeah, and what I would say is, as you know, there's the YOLO, you only live once principle, and a lot of people in today's day and age are like, well, I'd rather have fun while I'm alive than live eight extra minutes, hours, days, years, and be miserable and, you know, at what, you know, and then you can't, can't have any fun in life. And so I would love your thoughts on, Y you know, are you still having fun? <laughs> oh yeah. So um, yeah, that's a great question. Then um, that it, my sister-in-law was that was you know I get that reaction a lot. Like I'd rather die than have to give up you know cheeseburgers for the rest of my life. 
And I don't like, one, we don't have to think of it that way. There's a lot <laughs> of ways of thinking about it. And like the way I did it isn't, I'm not saying that's the way everyone has to do it. There's a, all, there's a middle ground and everyone's an individual here. But um, it's the, like, it was not that long after a week or a month later, she was, her, her cholesterol was elevated. And she's just not, you know, like three or four years older than I am. And, and that was actually enough for her. As I think she also knew like how I was doing with it. And I'm, to me, I'm, I'm crushing it. So I did re- I would I, say you're crushing it. Yeah, like <laughs> there are a lot of things about that are so much better. Like it started with this, but it's gone into like all facets of my life. I, I get up at 4 a.m. every day now. In the, back then I would really struggle to wake up in time to, you know, to take a shower and, grab a Diet Coke and a granola bar on the way out to door, the door. And that's not, that's not great for a type one diabetic either. Um, and then, but now I, I really do, it started with the diet, but other lifestyle changes, you know, I, I had, I, with all that energy, I talked about the caffeine, uh, not needing caffeine, but I, with all this energy, I also like have a little ADHD you know, kid in me. And so I do, I exercise a lot. So I love, I, that's one thing I love, I love to do. So I do that with my energy. It helps me, I do it mostly for my mental health, but it also, um, you know, it's good. It's, we also know that's really good for you. Sharon, you, you'd mentioned um, when you started your career, uh, starting at 0.7, for example, and you alluded to that it had some effects and other aspects of your professional uh, lives. Can you can you go into that a little bit? Well, I will say I, I talk very freely about that because I think it's really important that people know that there's various ways to end up in the same place. I, I think um, at the time, no one else was in my world and cardiology was working less than full time. And I actually felt there was definitely some stigma about it that I was less than, because I had never ever thought that I would be doing anything but less than, but then full-time you know, career arc. There was something about marrying another cardiologist and having a child that I thought, I really can't do this all at the same time. What and that's, um, that uh, maybe I wasn't as committed to my career, I wasn't as committed to Mayo, that there was, so I made, or that other people would have to do my work. So I would make sure that most of my colleagues did not know I was working part-time. I didn't hide it, but they never had to do, see a patient of mine if I wasn't there. I kind of stayed a little later. I later realized I'll stay there to see that patient and do those things, but I, I should not be. I will only grow resentful if I do full-time work for you know 70% pay, which is a lot, what a lot of people fall into. And they, and they talk about, well, I'm still doing full-time, and I say, that's on you. And I learned that pretty early is, you, you, you carve out the things, and it did give me both the leeway to have um, more time with family and to go and volunteer in the kindergarten class because that was important to me. It also gave me time to explore other things that were important to me in terms that ultimately um, actually truly enhanced my career. So very early on, um, you know, I founded our Women's Heart Clinic here, and uh, I got a cold 
letter at the time asking me to be on the board of a national advocacy organization for women with heart disease. Um, that has become something, I've been on their board, I run an annual training program for those individuals. And one of the things that even after my kids were in high school, and I could have easily worked full time, I had had Wednesday off, that had been my day, and I would get a, you know, an email, they would say, we need you to come out and testify on the Hill for us on this advocacy, can you come up that two Wednesdays from now? Like even the people that I worked with. So for me, I felt like it was buying my time, um, not to get my hair done, but because it enriched other aspects of my career. I think the, the, the reality for those thinking, maybe backing off on my FTE, um, it will take you longer to do things, to meet, reach some of the professional milestones. I describe myself as a late bloomer in terms of getting the rank of full professor when many fellows that I had trained were, um, were that before I was. But- um, how, did you, how did you handle that? Um, well, I will tell you that one of the things I've advocated a lot for Mayo and academic medicine in general is there's lots of reasons people might need to lean out, whether it's because of illness, whether it's because of caring for parents or for whatever reason. And so for men and women, we should, instead of writing people off who aren't er academic early, we should have big flashing lights welcoming them back. What can we do? Can we help you get retrained in IRB or whatever? Because when I had the opportunity to really dig in on the research that really has propelled me, I realized I hadn't filled out an IRB application since it was paper. And I was going to our fellows and I was saying, so I need some help here. And I really had no shame, but they were looking at me kind of like, so I, I think that there are ways when people take different career paths, whether it's for well-being or for choice mm -hmm. or because it's best for them, that we in medicine, in academic medicine and cardiology in particular, need to figure out different um, and alternate measures of success um, from a career standpoint. Because I there are some things I would have done differently, but I do not regret any of the choices that I made, um, even though it took me longer. And so some people say, boy, it's nice that physicians can share their ways of compensating for their well-being, which is often working less or shifting some priorities. And then some people who are not in medicine will say, well, that's a huge privilege that physicians even have the option of working less because of the incomes that we make or because we're married to other professionals, because not everybody has that. But yet being a physician is a unique circumstance. It's a professional career. I would love both of your opinions on that feedback from some members of society because healthcare is in a shortage of physician professionals, the population is aging, the number of physicians are, you know, we're highly short staffed. Um, one of you has maintained a full career. I don't know if you ever considered flexing your time, Brian. You've purposely maintained a part-time career um, so that you could be more well-rounded, which has helped you help patients. And how do we educate the public who are not in the medical realm about that yes, it is a privilege to be able to be flexible, but yet it actually does help patients in the long run. I would love your thoughts. Brian? Um, yeah, a lot of things come to mind. So I think, <clears throat> you know, it is challenging and, 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 we, and as people who are trying to help other people, we need to meet them where they are. So for me, in, in food, you know, we can, we can afford to eat a certain way, but 
the food that I'm talking about is not expensive. The lifestyle changes I made actually don't have to cost much at all. In fact, they can be less expensive. They do require a little bit more time, like to prepare food, uh, but not a lot, <laughs> not a lot. I can travel and eat very well in a, in a hotel room um, and it, that, you know, it's very, and very simply. Um, there are other things you can do just, you know, for your, for your overall health that also don't cost any money. They, you know, all these things can take a little bit of time, but things that we don't think about oftentimes are blind spots for people or, you know, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, parking a, a longer distance away, maybe taking the elevator only halfway or two floors before where you need to go just so you get a little bit of more movement in your day. Uh, I think, you know, the screen is a challenge, you know, and this is, a, I think, a big problem for a lot of people. So um, there, I, I, I mean, I know I, uh, we, I, my patient population is, off, is very diverse, and so we have patients who, you know, really have to struggle in, in buses to get here and things like that. So uh, it can be challenging, but if you're, you know, everyone has an iPhone now and everyone can look at their screen time too, and see what how they're spending their time. So for me, that was a big part of things. So like, you know, eliminating TV from my life. That that was that I you know that was done, and that you know it wasn't like I was watching a lot of TV before, but you know, and just restructuring my life and looking at things. Not that all I do is work and exercise. I have a family. I'm a dad, and I eat. We we make dinner like a family thing every every night. Try to if I if I can get home. But both the preparation, when? the eating, and the cleaning. Mm -hmm. hmm? Sorry, how was that initially when you went through this change? Obviously, as you said, your wife, you have four children. Yeah. Did they immediately buy into this? That's or what a great did you do? question. No, not at all. So my wife was, uh, she was supportive, but, you know, our kids were really young. And we were used to a certain way, you know, uh, of, you know, kids' food is not, not oh, you generally speaking, you know, if you look at a kid's menu on any restaurant, it's not a whole food plant-based option. Um, so it, that took time. It took, you know, between one and two years for my wife to get fully on board. But it was, that was also <laughs> kind of fun and exciting for me to go do more of the grocery shopping, to learn how to, I didn't even know where the dishes went in the kitchen, I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, but to, you know, to take an active role in the food preparation and um, yeah, and with time, you know, all the, that's the thing, you have to have patience. And that was another thing that came to mind when you were talking about other people in other circumstances is having like just self-forgiveness and self-compassion because if you set a bar here and, you know, you meet it for like a week and then, you, then, then a lot of people will fall off and give up completely. But that life isn't like that. You you make incremental progress. You you know fail is a horrible word, but we don't. I don't know if we have a better one. But you fail or backslide. Backslide. Yeah, that's a good one. Backslide, and then yeah, those are our growing opportunities. And look at that. Care, you know, look at that and say why and how and 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 how can I prevent it in the future? Or what adjustments can I make? But it's very reassuring to hear from somebody who has means to do it in various ways and has been doing it for years, including for a large family, that you can do it in economical ways and it's not for a particular mm -hmm. demographic. That's it's right. very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Sharon, your thoughts? Well, I think first, physicians should own their privilege. 
we are. I mean, our education level, our even our, our basic income level, and, and so and not to be defensive or to make excuses, but also to acknowledge when somebody says, that's all well and good, but calories are cheaper at McDonald's. I mean, for some of our patients, it, you know, with food insecurity, we have to deal with that. And it's the same thing with, yes, we have a physician shortage, and yes, there's a huge projected shortage of cardiologists because they don't eat and exercise like this man. Um, Brian's <laughs> trying to put you out of business. I know, and that would be great. Um, that would be great. But, but I, I also think that physicians also spend many, many years with de delayed gratification, you longer than I. I mean, we often are not, we, ha we don't reach the time where we feel like we have any privilege at all until, you know, we're in our 30s. And, um, and the 80-hour work week, which is the real work week. It's not a 40-hour work week for physicians. And a lot of times it's more than 80 hours. Exactly. And so so if you just say <laughs> the trainees, that 80-hour cap, the, it's the reality check is when they um, go on into real practice, is really we have to, is humanly unsustainable. And I would argue particularly when two people in the family are, are doing it. And I think we have to be pragmatic about the well-being of not just us, but our communities, our children, our, and the demands on us, which are not just work. So it's a, you know, your question's a great one because in this crisis, healthcare crisis, where we need all hands on deck, I mean, if we think about the pandemic, but I, I think we need to figure out better ways to solve that problem than making physicians and nurses work more hours and harder, because that's not a sustainable solution in my opinion. But if we can encourage the public that little things make a big difference over time, our public will get healthier so that hopefully we don't need more healthcare professionals. Ideally, we're all trying to work ourselves out of a job. That's what I love about your optimism there, Dawn. But, <laughs> Thanks. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the, tre <laughs> the, the trends, at least in cardiovascular disease, are not that rosy, but... <laughs> Sharon, I want... Maybe dermatology. I don't know. Well, the sun is still shining. <laughs> I know. Sharon, I wanted to ask you a question and, and, and help educate us, because as you said, your Wednesdays, in theory, were away from clinical practice, but yet um, we're so contactable now um, through electronic means, et cetera. How did you shut that off from the clinical perspective and pursue what you wanted to pursue in that time? Well, I didn't always. I mean, clearly there were days where I was home or even came in on those days to catch up. But how I viewed that is um, I wanted to be fully present when I went home from work. Um, that was the time where, I, you know, that was the time I was going to see my children and the like. And so I rationalized working, even working on clinical work on my day off, I, I know that you know, physician, you're going to work into the evening. So kind of I did what I might be doing after hours there, and that was somehow. But I also said, I choose every week what I'm going to do with that Wednesday. I'm going to choose I'm going to catch up on clinical work. I'm going to choose I'm going to go work out longer. I'm going to choose that I'm going to fly to DC and do something for the nonprofit. And so I take back ownership of it. And so I didn't feel necessarily guilty that I, you know, oh, I'm, I'm doing clinical work and it's my day off because there were other times where I felt very free to go on a kid's field trip um, and, you know, ride the bus and, uh, you know, and carry the water bottle and the Kleenex. And that brought me joy as well. And, and so, but I do think with the high connectivity, we have to signal to our colleagues 
we need to put out of office on and not be always available. Because if you respond to one email, and I have junior colleagues and I, I counsel them on this, if you respond to that one email, you will get five more. Your assistant will assume that Wednesday doesn't mean you're not available to me, and I have this question and I'm gonna send it, and then you feel like, you know, because we're very responsive people as physicians, I have to respond to it. So I think setting some guardrails around those things, but being flexible, and that's how I have been able to do this for so long because I've said, yeah, I want Wednesdays off on balance, but if there's a clinical need in the department, um, give me a heads up, I can switch things around. And obviously I took full hospital service and all of the things that went. So um, I think colleagues saw that as it was not a zero sum game. They still could do their work. I was you know, carrying my weight in the thing, places that were important. So a lot of people, you are such role models to me, to Sanj, to everyone, and I really appreciate you sharing your stories, but sometimes when you're a physician or a healthcare professional and you're just having a low time in life or you know midlife crisis or family dynamics or professional challenges, sometimes you're so far behind or in the corner or in, in the hole, so to speak, that you just feel like aspiring to well-being is such an insurmountable challenge on top of every other thing that you have to accomplish and it appears to be insurmountable and sort of like a weight or a cloud that follows you. What advice do you have as people who have been very dedicated and successful in this way? What advice would you give to our colleagues? Because as you know, a significant percentage of the healthcare industry is experiencing professional burnout and personal burnout. What, what would you say to those colleagues who really need to hear your advice on just next steps or baby steps or um, how, to, how to come into the light? Um, well, I think burnout is a, an issue that I, I'm not going to be able to <laughs> solve in an answer to the question, and I think that there are things institutionally that, uh, that can be helpful. Um, but in terms of what you can control, I think for me it's seeing clearly and living with intention. That sounds maybe cliche, but um, you know, knowing what knowing what's, you know, getting you depressed or getting you upset or getting you angry and making you feel like you're in a corner, seeing that clearly and then knowing and then reacting wisely in terms of what can I control, what can I not control. In terms of, you know, what the, the pillars of lifestyle, medicine or health, you know, you know, sleep, prioritizing, prioritizing these things like sleep uh, nu nutrition and movement <coughs> um, and eliminating unhealthy ha habits or addictions, those, those things, they are, they're all little quick fixes that will make you feel better in a moment, you know, turning the TV on or uh, having a glass of wine, um, but may not serve you, you know, uh, beyond that. And, and it's hard to see that clearly uh, <coughs> as a human being, but um, but if you watch it closely and you decide to go for a walk outside in nature instead of having a glass of wine or turning on a Netflix show um, and noticing the difference, maybe just try one and try the other and see which one serves you better. 
I think, I think the answer will be pretty clear. And how long, when you had your switch of lifestyle, did it take you to start seeing a difference? Because I think people try not eating French fries for one meal, taking one walk in nature instead of watching a show, and when three days later they don't feel like a new person, they feel like it's not gonna work for them. I think f if you make a dramatic change, you'll see a dramatic change. So for me, I did a dramatic change and it happened actually within days, yeah. Uh, and you, we see this, there are immersion programs where people will adopt a whole food plant-based diet and they'll, be, they, they'll actually have them stop their type 2 diabetes medications mm -hmm. when they start the, the, the change because it, it's that fast. If you make, uh, but you know, like, like we're trying to tailor, talk to all different groups of people and that is not just not uh, possible, that's too high of a bar or it's just, or, not even too high of a bar, it's an unrealistic expectation for them. So if you, but if you see it clearly and you do one thing, go for a walk instead of having a glass of wine, um, with time, it, it will. But I don't know, I just think you have to watch and see how you feel after those activities is kind of what I was saying. But I don't know if that's ever gonna make you feel like, a totally different person, but I think incrementally over time it probably will make a difference and then you make an, another little adjustment. That's another way to do it. It's not my, my personality is to go in 100% and I still am tweaking, you know, and it's fun for me. Um, but yeah, I think everyone can do it in their own way. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll build on the theme of being intentional. Um, because we very, we often as humans and particularly as physicians, one, we're driven, we're often people pleasers, if nothing else for our patients, very dedicated to our patients. And early career often feel like we have to say yes to things or we may never be asked again. And I found myself, my children were younger, I was getting on a plane to go someplace I didn't wanna go for, to give a talk to people I didn't really care about that wasn't really gonna do anything for my career. And I said, how did I get to this place? I do not wanna live, leave my children. And I did that and I came back and I, I may have shared because I've shared it with other people. I, I, I actually, it, it wasn't the epiphany of the health, but it was epiphany of like, I'm just saying mindless yeses. I need to come to the mindful no. And I need to, in order to facilitate me being able to better do that, I need to come up with what, what are some rules around which I would say yes or no to things, whether it's in my personal life or work life. And basically, I came up with a set of rules that were very specific to me um, based on my long-term goals, both personal and professional and what I wanted to do. And it facilitated it. That did not mean that these commitments did not go away because you know, you, give, you say it's a lot easier to say yes to that toxic. But I dug myself out of that hole. And I think the power of saying a mindful no is, that, that you really have thought about because it's so easy to say a mindless yes. And I tell people, when you say yes, you are saying no to something else. You are saying no to sleep, you are saying no to something, being with your children, you're being, you're, you know, you're saying no to being able to write that paper, whatever is your goal, time is finite. And so I, I think that if you're talking about baby steps is reflect on every yes or no, don't be quick to somebody ask you to do a pro, you know, work on a project is that project of interest to me? Is it gonna help me academically if that's what I want to do? Is it gonna take me away from my family if that's important more than I want to right now? 
And I had to learn it the hard way. I was in a really deep hole in terms of commitments where I felt like I wasn't seeing the, the light. And I can tell you that I have to <laughs> reform myself and you know, remind myself about my, <laughs> okay, was that just a mindless yes that I just said? But I said it as part of just how I move through and it's if a community member asked me for something or a family member and I always had an exception to all of my rules and if it will bring me joy and that was the you know so even if it fit none of the other categories if it brought me joy I could say yes to it well being with you here today has been a joy for me Yes, absolutely. We've learned uh, a tremendous amount. I want to ask you about your rules. Maybe we can ask you offline. <laughs> but is there anything, Sharon, Brian, that you wanted to add that we haven't added during this discussion? I mean, the, the, the content is outstanding. I guess I wish, I think, both of us to say, you know, take charge of your life. I think that for me, when I did, I felt better about so many other things. Yeah, thank you. I, I loved uh, listening to you today. Thank you for sharing all that. Um, some of it spoke to me and, and had similar experiences. The one thing that comes to mind is like why, like why I kept my diabetes secret for a long time. Like why do, why do I talk about it now? And the, like because I want it to, I, I think it's, it's helpful for other people to hear this story. And, and part of it in an, another lens or another angle would be, you know, it's frustrating. You know, I went to medical school, I met with dietitians, and, I, and I, the, the, the treatment plan for me, I know there's a lot of physicians that listen to this, so treatment plan for me was one of, you know, being normal was the goal, to be a normal, a normal person, but normal isn't healthy in our- It's in a our, setting on the dryer. It's a setting on the dryer. There you go. There you go. Yeah. There you go. So yeah. But you know. So that's that's my motivation, and that's what you know if, with physicians to try to learn the, learn these things and see what they can do to help their patients at, and to present uh, lifestyle options because they are power, powerful um, as as treatment options for their patients. And, and I, I know it's difficult with time, but uh, rather than just give it everyone a uphill. So we all do better when we're congruent with who we truly are and with our specific goals. And I think it's been wonderful that our audience has been mindful to opt into listening to the podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been talking about taking care of your personal well-being and learning from their own stories with Dr. Carlson and Dr. Hayes. Thank you very much for sharing. We especially want to thank them for being open and sharing personal details. If you have enjoyed Mayo Clinic's Talks podcast, please consider subscribing. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar and she's Dr. Dawn Davis. Stay healthy and thank you for the privilege of your time.